Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Rachel Osborne, adjunct curator at the A.J. Cook Arthropod Research Collection at Michigan State University. She's here today to tell me about her paper in Volume 6, Issue 4 of Insect Systematics and Diversity, in which she and her co-authors describe a new genus and six new species of ambrosia beetle, weevils in the tribe Xyloborini. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So to get us started, could you please describe these ambrosia beetles to us? Um, they're weevils, which are a group of beetles characterized by some really distinctive morphology, and they're incredibly diverse, right? The ambrosia beetles that I study um, make up a closely related, a pretty large group of closely related genera um, called the tribe Xyloborini. They're about one to two millimeters long. Um, and they um, have a cylindrical body shape. They're shaped almost like bullets because they live inside tunnels that they bore in um, freshly dead wood. And so that cylindrical shape really helps them um, really helps them navigate around their world. Uh, they also have a number of other characteristics. They have really cute bean shaped eyes, like a kidney bean shaped eyes. Aww. I think that that's pretty charming. Um, and the other thing that sets them apart is they have um, special organs in their exoskeleton that are called mycangia, and these uh, carry fungus. And so um, we'll talk a little bit more about where the fungus comes in later. Um, but these um, mycangia are another thing that make xylobarines pretty unique and diverse. Wow, and you touched upon it a little bit with the boring, uh, but can you tell us what they do ecologically? Yeah, ambrosia beetles live inside freshly dead wood, so they bore into trees that are either already dead or going to be dead very soon, um, and they create tunnels where um, they plant the fungus that they carry in their mycangia on the walls of the tunnels, and the fungus are able to digest part of the wood. And so then the ambrosia beetles eat the fungus for their nutrition. And so ambrosia beetles have a really close ecological relationship um, with their symbiotic fungi. Um, there's another thing that makes xyloborine ambrosia beetles really unique and that they have a special reproductive strategy. They, um, they're extreme inbreeders which means that they um, mate with their siblings. So when a female ambrosia beetle founds a new fungal gallery, she will lay a whole bunch of eggs. Most of those eggs will develop into females, but a few will develop into males. And um, the males will then mate right inside that fungal gallery with their sisters. And um, this extreme um, inbreeding 
with between siblings is um, usually not very advantageous. Most species would not do very well in breeding like this. But ambrosia beetles have this kind of ambrosia beetle has evolved to thrive really well um, with this mating system. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah. So did you yourself and a team maybe go out to the woods, find these boreholes and collect those beetles directly? Yeah, that's exactly what we did. Um, We um, traveled to um, South America and um, I have teammates who have also traveled to lots of other places in the world where we um, hike through the woods looking for down wood. And if you really examine down trees very, very closely, you'll see sometimes some of them have tiny little perfectly round pinholes that are just about the size of an ambrosia beetle. And um, if you use gardening tools and chainsaws to cut that wood down, you can split the wood open and um, find the galleries and sort of pluck the ambrosia beetles right out of their living environment. Um, It's a pretty unique mode of collection, and, and that's exactly what we did. It's very, it sounds like a a real treasure hunt. Very much it is, especially since the exact level of deadness in the tree is very specific. Um, You need a tree that is pretty fresh, but not completely alive, um, but not too dead and decomposed. So you really need to find like this Goldilocks level (laughs) of, of wood and, um, it's, it's definitely a, a skill that you need to acquire. Wow. That's really impressive. <laughs> um, and did you also use museum specimens? Yeah. So um, to back up a little bit, we started with um, freshly collected specimens that were preserved in ethanol. And the ethanol uh, protects DNA from degrading. And so we were able to extract DNA data from a number of fresh specimens. Um, And we compared the DNA of these specimens, um, a number of different specimens from all throughout the tribe Xyliburini. And we built what's called a phylogenetic tree, which is basically um, a graph in the shape of a tree that shows whose DNA is closely related to whom. And so we're able to use this phylogenetic tree to determine some evolutionary relationships between species that are on the tree. Um, And what we noticed was that there is a group of specimen on this larger tree, group of specimens that created sort of their own little group in and of themselves. And they were kind of separate from all of the other xyloborines on our tree. When we looked at these specimens carefully, like physically looked at the beetles themselves, we noticed that they had um, a group of unique morphological characters. They looked a little bit different than all of the other specimens we were looking at. And we also noticed that um, the DNA data in general really justified our designating these specimens into their own genus. And so that's what we did. We described a genus that's new to science that included all of the specimens from this group. But that was not the complete picture. That was just including the freshly preserved specimens that we had DNA from. And we were pretty sure that there was 
more species that belonged in our new genus. And so what we did was we wanted to look at museum preserved specimens. All around the world, there's a really rich supply of preserved insect specimens that are in entomological collections, in um, museums and universities and other institutions. And so what we did was we reached out to a number of these institutions and asked to borrow some of their specimens. We were interested in certain species that looked like they might belong to our genus. And uh, so what we, what we asked for was just to borrow some specimens. And those institutions very graciously loaned us specimens. They, they mailed them to us so that we could use them for science. Um, and that's something that happens pretty commonly in biodiversity studies like this. There's a lot of collaboration between insect collections and various expert scientists around the world. Um, and um, it's kind of an important part of biodiversity studies that I think lots of people don't realize. And it's one of the reasons why insect collections are so important to science. Um, the specimens that we borrowed uh, were preserved, they're pinned dried preserved specimens. So um, what that means is that they're not super great for DNA analysis. We weren't able to extract the DNA. Um, and also our loan agreement didn't include DNA analysis of these borrowed specimens. We certainly didn't want to misuse our borrowed specimens. But we were able to do what's called a morphological study, which is basically just a really close examination of the overall shape and the outward appearance of, um, of the specimens. And we did that and we noticed that there were several species um, within our group of lone specimens that did seem to belong within our genus, our new genus. And so between our fresh specimens and our borrowed specimens, we um, designated six new species to science, but we also um, reclassified seven species that had been described in other genera. We reclassified those into our own genus, our, our own new genus. Um, so making a nice little group of 13 closely related species in, in this new genus. That's so exciting. And reclassification is uh, not maybe quite as glamorous as finding new species, but it is so incredibly important. It is because it really uh, shows the evolutionary relationships. It allows us to keep the way that we classify species um, with, within line, in line with our current understanding of how evolution is. Definitely. And when you examine these specimens, you not only had access to the physical specimens themselves, but you had access to the label data, which has all this information about who collected them and when they were collected, um, and critically to your study, where they collected. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, when we described the new genus, um, we gave it the name Xenoxylobora because uh, that translates to strange wood borer. So wood borer is pretty self-explanatory. These are beetles that bore tunnels in wood. But the strange part of the name comes from the fact that all of the specimens in this new genus were from 
Africa or South America, which is kind of unusual. So Xyloburin ambrosia beetles, there are a lot of genera within Xyloburini that are located on multiple continents similar to ours. But when you have a genus that is located on multiple continents, it's always been found in Africa and South America, but also Asia or the, and the Pacific Islands, also Australia. And so most genera within xyloborines, when they are widely distributed, these genera have been what we call pantropical, which means they're found all around the equator. Um, the genus that we described, Xenoxylobora, only had specimens from South America and Africa. There are no species that live in Asia or um, the Pacific Islands or anywhere else, just those two continents, which is really unusual. Uh, and the first time we've ever noticed this specific distribution in this kind of ambrosia beetle. Um, and that was a really interesting evolutionary story for us. And we were able to do a couple of other analyses on uh, the DNA data that we had. And we discovered that the very first species that diverged, the first species to evolve in this genus, um, did so about 8 million years ago in South America. And there's a subgroup within our genus that um, is African species. And the first diverging African species originated about 2.5 million years ago. So it seems like this genus first evolved, first appeared on Earth um, 8 million years ago in South America. And then at some point, one individual or a group of individuals moved from, from South America to Africa. Um, and that's a really interesting evolutionary story. And there's a number of different ways that that could happen. One of the most common ways that you find uh, groups that have species separated between continents is humans have moved them around, right? We humans have been moving um, through trade routes for a while and every once in a while, or pretty commonly, we pick up species and inadvertently move them around. Sometimes on purpose, we move them around. Um, so we know, however, that this movement happened about 2.5 million years ago way before people were moving around. So this can't explain our distribution. Another way that you often have a closely related group of, of species widely distributed is um, when it's a really ancient, ancient group that evolved back when their continents were connected together into one continent. And then over time, those continents separated and you ended up with one group of species on one continent and another group of species on another continent. But again, we know that this separation happened within Xenoxylobora about 2.5 million years ago. We know at that point in history that Africa and South America were separated and, and up by the Atlantic Ocean. They were, they were pretty much where they are now. That's pretty, it's a pretty big separation. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is not um, a group that originated um, on one landmass that was then separated through time. This is a group that evolved in one place and then found itself distributed 
far from that originated original place on a whole new continent. Um, and we're not exactly sure how that happened. We don't have direct proof because nobody was there. But the best explanation that we have for that is um, dispersal on ocean currents and um, with the help of storm winds. So we know that occasionally um, a storm and ocean currents will carry plant material from one continent and wash it up onto another continent. And so it's plausible that Xenozalabora was um, some specimens, some species of Xenozalabora were um, existing in trees in South America that were carried on storm currents to Africa, washed up on the shore, and then found a new home in Africa, were able to proliferate and what we call radiate into new species in Africa. And um, that's just a really interesting evolutionary story. It really is. So we've talked a little bit about the interesting distribution of these species and these specimens, um, but, you know, these are really interesting beetles. They have a fascinating history. There are so many more questions to answer, um, but why do these beetles matter? Why is biodiversity discovery important? Yeah, I think that understanding current biodiversity uh, really allows us to have a window onto the current ecological relationships um, that make the world go round today. Um, there are also just endless questions and um, interesting facts and um, relationships that you can uncover with this kind of study. Um, and in my opinion, I just think that studying life on earth and its diversity is really just the coolest thing you could possibly study. I think that whether or not you're a scientist, it's not hard to appreciate how interesting um, just appreciating flora and fauna on earth is. Uh, I also think that um, learning ecological mechanisms and uh, understanding evolutionary history that came to create our current ecological earth as it is today um, is really the foundation for why it's important to preserve and protect as much of the earth as possible. It's really a reminder that there's so much more happening on earth in terms of life and interactions beyond humans. It's really easy for us to get divorced from the natural world in our everyday lives. And studies like this really show that there is so much happening um, on a really minute level sometimes that we might not notice. And um, really interesting things happened way before humans were ever here. There was a whole functioning ecosystem for millions of years before people ever started um, walking around. So uh, we're really just one small part of the earth. And um, this kind of science really helps us understand that. Um, and understanding and appreciating how small of a part we, we actually have in Earth's biodiversity is so important for justifying preservation of life um, and the natural world. And that's, that's really my motivation for participating in this kind of study. I love personally understanding biodiversity, and I think it's really important 
for for everybody. I think that's really beautifully said. <laughs> I will also say that that is probably just one one way that you can look at that question, right? There's like so many different ways that you can open that question, which is why it's a great question. But that's also why we're here, right? We're I'm, you know, I'm here to speak to an audience that's not necessarily a scientific audience or if it is not necessarily an entomological or a scolatine audience, right? Like so talking about why our work is important is is an important thing. People in the general yeah. public need to um, want to understand why what we do matters. Um, and other other scientists is important for other scientists to understand as well, because that's also how collaboration happens. And I'm really looking forward to all of the new information that we're going to learn about these ambrosia beetles and all sorts of other taxa. I agree. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. I'm so glad. Rachel Osborne's paper, New Xyloborine, Genus with an Afrotropical Neotropical Distribution, is in Volume 6, Issue 4 of Insect Systematics and Diversity. See the episode details for a link to the paper. And to learn more about Rachel and her work, you can follow her on Twitter, at Rachel K. Osborne. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.